I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's show, we'll hear from Harvey Oi about the advantages of using fibrin glue for conjunctival autographs into regime surgery. And then you immediately slide your graft from the cornea onto the bare sclera. And then you apply a little pressure, let the glue dry for about five minutes. And then you remove the lid detractors. And then you ask the patient to blink. We'll also hear from Smyo Osmanovic about a common complication associated with punctal plugs, pyogenic granulomas. They usually look like mound of flesh tissue, usually going around one area of the plug, extending toward the lead margin or over the plug, usually three to four, five millimeters in size. First this. You can participate in As Seen From Here by calling our listener response lines. You can ask questions of our guests or discuss the topics yourself. Listeners in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. Listeners in the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275. Messages left on the system may be included in future episodes of As Seen From Here. The listener response lines are in beta testing. You're supposed to hear a nice greeting welcoming you to the show. But for now, all that you'll hear is this. The person you're trying to reach is not available. Please leave a message after the beep. Go ahead and leave your message anyway. We'll still get it. All messages left on this system become the property of As Seen From Here. The full text of the release is available on asseenfromhere.com forward slash legal. Again, those numbers in the United States are area code 646-808-0231 and in the United Kingdom, 020-7558-8275. Be a part of the podcast. I'll repeat the numbers again at the end of the show. The name of the game in pterygium surgery is prevention of recurrence. Several techniques have been advanced to reduce recurrence rates. Irradiation and mitomycin help to prevent recurrences, but are fraught with long-term risks of serious complications. Conjunctival autografting, harvesting unaffected conjunctiva to employ as a graft over the site of the defect left by excision, provides good suppression of recurrent pterygia, with few associated long-term risks. However, the procedure is laborious and not without its own complications, chiefly related to sutures. Dr. Harvey Oi studied an alternative to suturing, the application of fibrin glow. I asked him to describe the study. It's a randomized uh, controlled trial. Basically, we see a lot of pterygium patients here in the Philippines, and uh, the main problem is that uh, there's a lot of recurrence. So we got interested in using fibrin glue, and what we did is we got patients with uh, first-time pterygium, then we uh, randomly assigned them to either uh, getting conjunctival autographs attached using nylon sutures or conjunctival autographs attached using fibrin glue. And then we followed these patients up over a period of several weeks and our outcome measures were uh, the comfort level of the patients, the duration of the surgery, uh, and the success rate of uh, the surgery, meaning the recurrence rates of the pterygium. Now, before we start talking about what the nature of the surgery is, can I have you explain what the disadvantages of just doing a simple excision and leaving bare sclera for pterygium? 
Well, if you just remove the pterygium and you leave a bare sclera, there's a very high recurrence rate. That's the main difficulty with pterygium surgery. It's not the actual surgery, but the main challenge is how to prevent recurrence. And this can be maybe up to 50% in some series. What is the advantage then of doing a conjunctival graft over doing just a simple excision? Well, the advantage of doing conjunctival grafting after pterygium excision is that there's much lower recurrence rates compared to just leaving a bare sclera. This, the recurrence rates can be as low as 2% and maybe as high as 9% as compared to just leaving a bare sclera. The recurrence rate can be 50% or more. But there are downsides to doing a conjunctival graft too, right? Yes, there are downsides to doing a conjunctival autograph. Well, you can get lower pterygium rates. You do disturb the conjunctiva. Later on, some of these patients may require a filtering surgery, so you know you have less room to work with. And of course, you make an extra wound, and sometimes you can get an infection from that extra wound you made when you harvested the autograft. Plus, there's a certain level of skill that's required to do a conjunctival graft that's beyond the level of skill that's required to do just a simple excision. Well, definitely it takes a little bit more skill to harvest a graft and then transfer it over the bare sclera. We thought of using fibrin glue because this makes the, the surgery easier. In the paper, you describe a grading system for these lesions. Can you, can you talk about that? Just so we can standardize the subject, we followed a grading system developed by Dr. Donald Tan from Singapore. Basically, uh, we divided the pterygium into three grades. Grade one is the atrophic type of pterygium, and in this grade, you see the, the episcleral vessels visible under the body of the pterygium. So these are clearly seen. With grade three pterygium, or fleshy type of pterygium, these episcleral vessels are totally covered by the pterygium, so you can't see them under the pterygium. And grade two, these would be patients not falling into these two grades, so somewhere in between. The fibrin glue that you used for this study was Beriplast P. Beriplast P. The fibrin glue that we use, it's basically a, a two-component system. It comes in, in a box, and in the box there are two vials. The manufacturer calls them the Combiset 1 and the Combiset 2. So in the Combiset 1, this contains fibrinogen and factor 13 and a proteinin. In the Combiset 2, there's human thrombin and calcium chloride. Can I have you explain the technique of using fibrin glue for conjunctival grafts? If I can just have you talk me through sort of one surgical case. Uh, in the study, we basically operate on patients with primary pterygium. We instilled topical anesthesia, and then the patients underwent the standard prep. We applied lidocaine epinephrine to the body of the pterygium, and that's your primary anesthesia. Then the pterygium were dissected starting from the apex, using a surgical blade 15, and we carefully followed the surgical uh, plane of the pterygium until uh, the pterygium was dissected to the limbus. At this point, we then use uh, uh, scissors to separate the pterygium from the under underlying sclera and the surrounding conjunctiva, and then we excise the pterygium head using these Westcott scissors. So that's the pterygium excision part, and I think that's pretty much standard. For harvesting the conjunctival autograph, at the conjunctival, the, the donor site of the conjunctival graph, we basically uh, marked the size of the donor to be removed. 
So this area was based on how large the bare sclera area was. So we basically added an additional millimeter dimension uh, lengthwise and to the width to get the dimensions of the donor site. We also marked the epithelial side of the conjunctival donor, donor site so that we know which, which, is, which side is up. Then we uh, applied the lidocaine anesthesia to balloon the conjunctiva. And then we carefully dissected the donor conjunctiva using conjunctival forceps and vanas scissors. And then we dissected the conjunctiva using scissors away from the tenons. We took special care to make sure that the conjunctiva doesn't flip over or roll over. And then we just carefully slide the graft over the cornea, and you keep this moist during sterile like sterile BSS. So if you're going to use the fibrin glue, at this point it's best to ask your nurse to, you know, prepare the, the two components and then you can apply like your first component over the bare sclera and then you sequentially apply the second component and then you immediately slide your graft from the cornea onto the bare sclera and then you apply a little pressure let the glue dry for about five minutes, and then you remove the lid detractors, and then you ask the patient to blink, and you see whether the conjunctiva is in place. Almost always the conjunctiva would be in place. How firmly does the glue seal? When the patient blinks right after you take the lid speculum out, can you see the, the little corners of the graft flapping, or is it all tacked down like it's super glue? I, I've, I've never used fibrin glue personally. I don't know what the experience is like. When you remove the retractors and you ask the patient to blink, the donor conjunctiva should be flat on the surface. It's not necessary that the edges of the donor conjunctiva are in complete contact with the edges of the bulbar conjunctiva, the graft site, but uh, it should be flat, so that's what you're after. When you apply this glue, how long do you think that the glue actually stays sealed? Well. We never really tested to find out, you know, we, we never ripped off the donor conjunctiva. So we don't really know at which point the donor conjunctiva becomes very firmly adherent. Certainly by the end of one month, the donor conjunctiva looks like it uh, got infused with a normal ocular surface. I would say about one month we expect a complete healing of the, or complete adhesion of the donor conjunctiva. When you say that you have the surgical nurse prepare the, the fibrin glue, how complicated and how, how long uh, does that preparation take? It, it's very easy to prepare the fibrin glue. Basically, you just have to load the vial onto a uh, syringe. So you do that for both vials, and then you just basically apply it, squeeze it onto the conjunctival surface or the, the donor site. It's very, very easy for them to do. No more difficult than getting a, like a subconjunctival medication. Do you know where Beriplast P is manufactured? It's made by Aventus Bering. Did the duration of the surgery in the fibrin group and in the conjunctival graft with sutures group differ? When we use the sutures, the total surgical time would average about an hour. But with the fibrin glue, this would be around 20 minutes. So it's a reduction of five times. Were there differences in patient comfort postoperatively? There were marked improvements in patient comfort. With the sutures, the symptoms related to the sutures would sometimes still be present after a month after the surgery, but 
using the 5-in glue, most of the patients felt normal by the second week. Did any of the grafts dehiss postoperatively? Yes. One patient in the uh, sutured group developed graft, partial graft dehiscence, but none of the patients in the 5-in glue group developed any dehiscence. Were the recurrence rates any different for the two groups? None of the patients developed recurrence of the pterygium. But what was the, the duration of the postoperative follow-up? Uh, we followed the patients up for a month afterwards. Has this study changed the way that you manage these patients? Yes, it has. Well, now we, we basically prefer to use the 5-in glue over sutures for doing conjunctival autografting in patients with pterygium. Uh, we tend to also bunch our cases together so that we can economize on the use of the 5-in glue. We've shown that uh, the 5-in glue is a safe and effective method for attaching these conjunctival autographs. In our study, we were not able to do long-term observation. It may be that you know after half a year or a year or two, we may start to see a recurrence of the, the pterygium, but this has to be determined by future studies. Harvey Oi, thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me, Josh. Harvey Oi is Clinical Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of the Philippines in Manila. His article, Comparison of Fibrin Glow and Sutures for Attaching Conjunctival Autographs After Pterygium Excision, appears in the April 2005 issue of Ophthalmology. Punctal plugs are a safe, effective, and reversible treatment for moderate to severe dry eye. Most patients tolerate punctal plugs well, but occasionally a patient will present with a partially extruded plug being forced out of the punctum by what appears to be a fleshy mound. Smyo Osmanovic investigated these lesions, their histology, and their natural history. I interviewed him by telephone. Smyo, can you describe the design of the study for me, please? Well, this was a retrospective study, basically. We have a pretty well-organized computer database in our practice, we identified all people who received punctal plug occlusion in uh, almost four-year period, starting with uh, 2000, November 2000 and ending with uh, April 2004. And we identified 404 patients who received the plugs. And among those patients, we identified 27 who developed pyogenic granuloma after plug insertion and I have to underline, pyogenic granuloma was identified on slit lamp exam. So we have to see pyogenic granuloma to call it that way. In 10 of those patients, we did biopsy of either pyogenic granuloma and plug or pyogenic granuloma alone and submitted for histopathologic diagnosis by Dr. Edward at the University of Illinois Hypatology Lab. Can you tell me what the pyogenic granulomas look like at the slit lamp? Uh, well, presentation of pyogenic granuloma and, you know, associated punctal plugs really varies from case to case. However, most commonly, if there is partial punctal plug extrusion, they usually look like mound of flesh tissue, usually going around one area of the plug, extending over the uh, lead margin or over the plug, usually three to four, five millimeters in size. In patients who have complete plug extrusion, they present it as a mound, basically, of flesh tissue protruding from the punctum and completely obstructing it. And in general, how long did it take the pyogenic granulomas to form after insertion of the plugs? Well, it was 
highly variable. It was very, very highly variable. Usually, uh, we collected all data together and average basically time period from plug insertion to either plug removal or presentation missing plug and pyogenic granuloma visible in the plankton was around 140 days. But range was really very, very different from two weeks, 15 days to more than 1,000 days. 15 days sounds really short. Yeah. Yeah, we have some patients, actually a few patients who presented, you know, very, 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 very shortly after, after the procedure. Were there any factors that predicted who would get pyogenic granulomas? We did multiple regression analysis. We studied uh, age, diagnosis, uh, gender, and plug size in relation to pyogenic formation, and to know that only plug size is identifiable risk factor associated with pyogenic granuloma formation. Increasing plug size basically increases the risk of pyogenic granuloma formation. For example, this is a study where we used only one specific brand of plug, and that's parasol punctal occluder and parasol plus punctal occluder in few cases. But these are all same, basically, plugs from same manufacturer, Odyssey Medical. I would say the nice thing about this study is it's one type of plug, one type of surgeon, and the same type of insertion. Can you tell me what the Odyssey parasol punctal plug looks like? Uh, my recollection is is that that the little arrow tip at the at the end of the plug's not solid. Uh, that has uh, has a little f- flexible flange on it. Yes, the parasol plug has three parts, and there is no universally accepted nomenclature for the plugs. Some people call that arrow bulb. Uh, we called it nose, and then there is a shaft or neck that goes from the bulb, and then there is collarette or dome that basically stays uh, outside the punctum and flushes the eyelid. This plug has basically gutter inside the nose, and it has sharp edge on the superior portion of the of the nose or bulb, and I think that's a very important feature. Parasol Plus punctal occluder, which is larger in size, is manufactured by the same company, has solid uh, silicon-filled nose, doesn't have this uh, gutter in the nose. So that's kind of interesting feature and might be very important for pyogenic granuloma formation. When you saw patients with partially extruded plugs, you took the plug out, right? Yes. Our approach is generally, if you see partially extruded plug, plug usually sticks outside, and if it's oriented toward the conjunctiva, you know, it will irritate the eye, you know. So we generally take the plug out. Uh, we did take uh, biopsies in 10 patients, and uh, I think four of those have partially extruded plug, and then generally put them on combination of antibiotic and steroid, usually Toverdex for a week. That does pretty nice things to patients, you know, make them comfortable meanwhile, and pyogenic granuloma regresses pretty nicely during that period. What is the typical time frame from the time that you explanted the plug to the time that the pyogenic granuloma would resolve? Up to six weeks, I would say in most patients, you can see uh, you can see that plug, uh, that uh, uh, pyogenic granuloma was mostly mostly done. In some patients, it was a little bit quicker, but I would say up to six weeks. Was the resolution of the pyogenic granuloma complete, or was there some granuloma left once the um, punctum healed? Uh, we, we did some, some probing in few patients, and it looks like we were able to irrigate, insert probe easily through the canaliculus. If there is some there, you know, it's not probably causing any significant problems. I, ha- I have to say, however, that the remaining pyogenic granuloma probably acts functionally as, as a plug. Uh, patients who have uh, pyogenic granuloma formation and plug extrusion 
still don't have recurrence of dry eye symptoms for several months. So probably there is some subclinically, you know, undetectable, you know, just by looking through the punctum, you know, deeper in the canaliculus that you cannot see. Sure. And I think that that goes nicely with behavior of pyogenic granuloma shown in other tissues when you remove the source of stimulus, pyogenic granuloma regresses usually pretty, pretty, pretty rapidly. One of the things that, that you mentioned in the paper was that the histology of the pyogenic granulomas in which extrusion of the plug was complete was an involutional yeah. pattern rather yeah, than... Yeah, basically, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering whether this suggests that the pyogenic granuloma begins to resolve on its own once the, once the plug has extruded completely. I, I, think, I, I think that that's probably the case. When, when plug is extruded from the cavity of canalicles, there is no more mechanical stress on the surrounding tissue and there is no eroding effect of the edge of the bulb, so exciting stimulus is basically removed, then uh, pyogenic granuloma starts to regress. There is a very interesting uh, pattern of extrusion that we noted in some patients in which plug remained attached firmly to the surface of the punctum by a uh, band of fibrovascular tissue, I would say. It keeps plug very, very firmly attached. It's very difficult to remove the plug from this band because it's, it's encircled the, uh, the, the plug so tightly that it's very hard the plug through this band and you have to usually remove entire band of tissue together with the plug to get it out. And we did uh, some histological analysis of those bands and actually we do see signs of involuting granulomas inside the band. Uh, this presentation was shown before by a French group. The name is Fayette and they published paper, I think it was in uh, Thermology in 2001. Basically they have one, one, one case in which they took biopsy of this band and they thought that fibrovascular band formation was a double uh, mucosal dissection independent of the pyogenic granuloma formation. We think that's not the case. We think that inciting event is always pyogenic granuloma and that pyogenic granuloma causes extrusion of the plug with formation of the band. In cases in which there is entrapment of mucosa between the, the neck of the plug and the collar of the plug. And we just submitted the abstract for academy meeting this year describing series of 10 patients like that in which we have histology done and did PAS staining and basically did nice histological characterization of this process and we propose actually mechanism responsible for this. In the context of my own clinical practice, uh, I've, I've seen several patients with partially extruded punctal plugs with a little pink fleshy mass. And I've wondered, too, whether it's a pyogenic granuloma. But much more commonly, I've, I've seen people come to the office and the, and the plug's just gone. Uh, and I'm wondering whether your study suggests that with some of these patients, that what's going on is, is that there's an, extrus- excuse me, an extrusion of the punctal plug by process of a pyogenic granuloma, then resolution of the pyogenic granuloma so that when they come to the office, all, all that you see is, is a punctum with no pyogenic granuloma but, but no plug. Yeah, I think, I think you, you, you're really nice with that scenario. I think that's what probably happens very often. And there is no way to establish real incidence of pyogenic granuloma because we don't see those patients. I mean, they just lose the plug and, uh, you know, Pyogenic granuloma regresses and they come back, pyogenic granuloma is gone, and we don't know why plug is gone. So I think probably that pyogenic granuloma formation is a very significant factor in uh, spontaneous plug loss. Can you tell me why you think punctal plugs produce pyogenic granulomas? Well, it, it's kind of interesting. interesting thing. Uh, uh, I, I think probably the design of the plug is the most important factor. 
we didn't discuss that in our paper because we don't have data to suggest that particular feature of the plug might be responsible, but we are now conducting actually a prospective study in which we are studying two plugs with very similar design that are different in only one feature, and that's that empty face in the nose or that gutter in the nose and uh, sharp edge of the nose. Uh, we are comparing actually uh, Aquaflow plug made by Alphamedics and the Parasol plug or the Symmetrical plug. And uh, we have almost eight months of data, more than uh, 100 patients probably involved so far, and uh, we'll, we'll have data hopefully by, by, by the end of the year. And, and I think plug design probably plays a crucial role. It's interesting uh, when you ask the question that you know, everybody is seeing these pyogenic granulomas, but if you, if you go and check literature about pyogenic granuloma, at the time when we were writing the article, and that was last summer, we found only four reports in English literature with five patients described. When I talked to corneal specialists in the area, you know, someone told me, oh yeah, I see that all the time. You know. The plugs that we use clinically are, the, the material for the plug is, is a, is, silicone, is a silicone. Elastomer, yeah. elastomer, yeah. Do we know that the silicone's not the culprit in the, in the production of the, the pyogenic granuloma? If you, if you think that the immune response might be mediated this, I mean, that, that, that's, you know, uh, logical thought, but there, are a lot, there, is, there is pretty nice body of literature about the effect of silicon elastomers in the tissue and what, what happens when, when there is immune response. Uh, when you have silicon uh, basically causing response in the body, it's usually giant foreign body, uh, foreign body giant cells with multiple nuclei, and they ingest the silicon, so you can see the asteroid bodies and refractive particles inside these giant cells. Here, we have typical pyogenic granuloma with a lot of capillaries with mixed infiltrate, basically inflammatory infiltrate, no giant cells whatsoever. Uh, that's number one. Number two, if there is any immune mechanism there, then you would expect that if that response develops toward one plug, it will develop toward all other plugs in the patient's eyes, and that, that's not the case. I think probably geometric factors, you know, design factors, the uh, chronic trauma caused by plug presence in the eyelid is more more important. Uh, I think I think punctal plugs are very very safe and efficacious way of very efficacious treatment modality in, in, in of dry eyes, and I, I think they are underutilized because they they really help patients a lot. They are easy to insert. They're relatively safe. Of all complications that were described so far, pyogenic granulomas are probably most important, and they are completely reversible with plug removal. And uh, I think, I think you know, they they probably have their place in treatment of dry syndrome more than what currently is. Smayo, thank you very much. No problems. You know, it was a pleasure. Smayo Asmanovic is clinical assistant professor in the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at the Illinois Eye and Ear Infirmary of the University of Chicago at Illinois. His paper, Pyogenic Granulomas After Silicone Punctal Plugs, a Clinical and Histopathologic Study, appears in the April 2005 American Journal of Ophthalmology. Now, comments from our listener response line. This is Dr. Gary Levin, MD, from the clinical faculty at Lumberland University School of Medicine, Department of Ophthalmology. I've just finished listening to Dr. Josh Young interviewing Jack Dodick on the innovations and innovators in cataract surgery. There are other aspects in the evolution of modern cataract removal. Dr. Dodick focuses on surgical innovators and other innovative techniques for cataract removal. Today's phacomulsification procedure is not your father's Buick. 
Our modern phacal emulsification machines are not the same as the original instruments designed by Charles Kelman. His invention was very original and innovative. It had some limitations, however, which led to high rates of complication and perhaps a delayed acceptance of the procedure. For it took several years and perhaps even decades for the technology to catch up with the technique. The original instrument was hand-tuned. It frequently had to be retuned during the procedure by retuning the resonating oscillator frequency for ultrasound generation. The handpiece had a dual circulation consisting of the irrigation aspiration circuit for the actual cataract removal, and then a second circulating system to keep the handpiece cool as well as the tip. This was a rather difficult and tricky assembly technique at the time and consisted of assembling a number of O-rings. Failure to accomplish this correctly would result in contamination of the irrigation aspiration circuit by non-sterile cooling fluid. This was probably the etiology for the early cases of bacterial endophthalmitis that Dr. Dodek mentioned. In addition to that, the original phacal emulsification machine had either an on or off setting with one power setting of phacal emulsification, one setting for irrigation aspiration, either on or off, non-programmable for use by individual surgeons. There was no modulation of either phacal power, cycle duration, or irrigation aspiration rates. It would take a decade or more for computer software algorithms and the development of microprocessors to develop the precise modulation techniques, modulation and amplification of pulse power, duty cycle, and also, most recent, heads-up display, which makes the surgeon's work much easier. Another aspect which is important in the regard to removal of cataracts is the fact that the original phacal emulsifications were carried out in the aqueous. The intraocular lens was often inserted under air, which was filtered to become sterile. It would take the development of viscoelastic materials such as helon to facilitate the insertion of the intraocular lens to protect the corneal endothelium from the ultrasound power. The first implementation of viscoelastics were cohesive in the form of helon. As time went on, newer viscoelastics, which were more dispersive, were invented. Intraocular lens materials have also undergone evolution, both in material from PMMA to silicone, acrylic, and now polymer intraocular lenses, as well as the development for correction of higher-order aberrations. The packaging, sterilization, production have been refined, as well as the quality of control of the intraocular lens. Early intraocular lenses were sometimes packaged in sterile sodium hydroxide requiring irrigation and flushing. Placement of the intraocular lens is also developed. Originally placed in the anterior chamber or clipped to the iris, they migrated to the posterior chamber when Steve Shearing found that he could implant an intraocular lens in the posterior capsular space in the bag. Most recent developments involve the development of capsular retention rings for securing unstable capsular zonular interfaces. With each problem or difficulty, a specific solution has evolved, specific to the complication or challenge of cataract surgery. It is true that there was a prolonged delay in acceptance of phacal emulsification in the 1960s and 70s, perhaps due to some of the reasons I just mentioned. Even in rather metropolitan locations, such as Albany, New York, which at the time were considered to be a backwater, phacal emulsification was not instituted until 1977 and 1978. Residents would sneak off to work with one private attending to learn the technique. Although the chief of the department did have a basic science course on phacal emulsification, there was a long learning curve, and most surgeons went through the course of learning to do intracapsular cataract extraction with a 9 or 10 millimeter incision, converting to extracapsular cataract extraction with a somewhat smaller incision, and then evolving on to phacal emulsification. Today's residents start at the other end of the curve with clear cornea, no sutures, perhaps even topical anesthesia. The conversion for today's trainees 
extra capsular cataract extraction for them is rather traumatic. Exactly the opposite of what Dr. Dodek, Dr. Kelman, myself, and many other ophthalmologists have experienced. Parenthetically, today's innovations seem to be accepted much more quickly. Perhaps this is due to modern communications, multimedia, internet, and the power of discourse has followed the same slope as Moore's Law in computer processing power. We stand on the shoulders of brave clinician scientists. Successful cataract surgery is a bargain basement procedure for the Medicare system as compared to what it was receiving in 1970 and 1980. Ask questions of Dr. Oy and Dr. Osmanovic or any of our previous guests, or just make a comment about any of the topics we have discussed. Call our listener response lines. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275, or Skype, J. Young, MD. Be part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.